This is Stories of Win, where we showcase amazing women in neuroscience. We chat with them about their research, their unique journeys through academia, and what drives their passion for studying the brain. Here is one of their stories. We're here with Abba Gupta, Dr. Abba Gupta, and we're here to chat a little bit about neuroscience. And so, Abba, we usually like to start our interviews by asking the interviewee how uh, how they first became interested in neuroscience or studying the brain. Sure. Um, so I have to go way back to college, um, which I actually um, attended Yale for that. <laughs> I'm from Philly and I've been making this circle between Philly and New Haven for some reason. <laughs> but anyway, um, so way back then, um, I took a year-long artificial intelligence class, which uh, I'm not going to say how many years back it'll take <laughs> me, but um, that was before it became such a hot topic, I think. Um, and it was a programming class, um, and I was just so fascinated by what we were covering in that class, especially um, human decision making and how to represent that in you know code. Um, and that actually is what got me interested in neuroscience. I hadn't taken a neuroscience class in college. Um, but it was really that computer science class that got me very interested in neuroscience, and specifically, cognitive neuroscience. Um, so just the process of thinking and cognition and and all that. Um, so that was the initial spark. Um, okay. <laughs> I went on to do um, an MD-PhD program at the University of Pennsylvania, and I was looking for a thesis lab. And so I was um, kind of visiting various professors thinking I wanted to do something in maybe the biological basis of psychiatry because you know, obviously, psychiatric disorders affect can affect cognition. Um, and I was actually kind of discouraged by the principal investigators themselves who said, okay, so I'll date myself. This is like the mid-90s now. <laughs> but, you know, biological research in psychiatry was, I guess, at a you know, very primitive stage back then. Yes. And a lot of the PI said to me, you'll never finish. You'll never get out. Like, it's so hard. You know, it's all a fishing expedition right now. So that was discouraging. And I ended up doing my thesis, in, of all things, an ophthalmology lab. And that was more because... The PI was great. Um, you know, the, the projects were interesting. This is actually, um, uh, her name uh, is Jean Bennett. Um, and she actually gave the commencement address here at Yale a couple of years ago. She works on gene therapy for retinal, you know, for blinding disorders. Oh, and okay. has had a lot of success in that field. So she's a Yale alumnus and was invited back to give commencements. I think you've made it when you were giving the commencement <laughs> address. But anyway... Awesome lab, you know, project went well. And then, uh, you know, going into ophthalmology became a real option. But I always remembered that my, you know, initial interest was really cognitive neuroscience. And somehow I wanted to get back to that. And actually just taking a step back, I, you know, we have to do um, a preliminary examination before you start your thesis work. And at Penn at that time, the prelim exam consisted of writing a mock grant proposal on any subject that was not related to your thesis. Um, so that was the exercise. It was supposed to take about, I think, a month or six weeks or so. And I was looking for a project, and I, I mean, a, a topic to write the thesis on. And it turned out that I happened to be looking through a Newsweek magazine, which back then was in print version. And I came mm -hmm. across this one-page article on autism. 
which was fascinating. I didn't know anybody with autism. Um, I thought, wow, this is a condition that seems to affect some very human qualities in terms of like abstract thinking, social cognition, you know, social interactions, all of those things. Boy, I'd love to be able to study this. So I decided to make that the topic and having no idea what I would propose as for a grant proposal. Um, and so it took me like three months, I think, to come up with an idea. And I ended up proposing like postmortem brain tissue work and looking for various markers and whether development had, you know, was was off and, you know, as evidenced in, in by postmortem brain tissue work. And so I defended that passed, did my thesis for four years in, in, in an ophthalmology, um, you know, uh, field. And then I, I, at the end, when I was trying to decide which direction to go, you know, the department of the, um, the chairman of the department of ophthalmology said, you could come join our, us once you graduate, you know, we'll give you lab space, we'll give you startup money, you know, you know, I was kind of working on his favorite disorder. <laughs> so, so I had all those advantages. I thought, oh, this would be great. And then something still told me, you know, I really feel a lot more passionate about cognitive neuroscience and specifically autism. So I um, was, you know, I went back to do my clinical rotations after the PhD program and realized that at least at Penn and at CHOP, which is the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, the affiliated Children's Hospital with that with that med school, that it was developmental behavioral pediatricians who saw kids with autism. And a lot of other places, it's child psychologists and child psychiatrists. But there it was um, DBP specialists. Okay. And so I decided, well, I, there was an idea that I would maybe not even do residency because what I really wanted to do was research. But then I realized, you know, I do like seeing patients and helping families. And um, so I decided to apply for the match in pediatrics, um, got a position in state at CHOP, um, did one year of uh, DBP fellowship there where I saw lots of kids affected by autism. Um, and that was really the first time I had like personal experience seeing kids with autism. Up till then, it's still been very abstract. Like I'm doing this because I'm interested in cognitive neuroscience. But then I really um, got to feel how much of an impact this diagnosis has on kids and their families, mm -hmm. um, how serious of a diagnosis it can be. So, um, uh, I, so I did one year of fellowship in DBP after the residency and then was looking for um, spending some of that time during residency to start working on a research project. And at the time, there was very little going on at Penn and at CHOP, which was surprising because it's a huge research institution. So um, you say there was little going on uh, uh, under basic that topic. Research. Yeah. Oh, basic science. Basic okay. science research in autism. Okay. Yeah, there was very little going on at the time there. And so I basically sent unsolicited emails to several mm -hmm. institutions asking for postdoctoral research training in autism. I was thinking like autism genetics because I had molecular biology training from my thesis um, work. So um, I think I sent emails to Johns Hopkins and Boston Children's and Yale. And um, Dr. Volkmar, who was the past director of the Child Study Center here, mm -hmm. he's one of the first ones who wrote back and said, oh, sure come on up, you know, visit us. And I was like thrilled because I had such a hard time trying to, you know, generate interest as, you know, a trainee at, at Penn and Chop to like, you know, gather people to work on and focus on autism, basic science research. 
So I came up to Yale um, and uh, looked around and met lots of people. They invited me to come back and give a talk. Um, so I did that, and there was one spot left um, in their T32 pro, um, training program available, and I applied and was able to get it. So I actually transferred my fellowship training from CHOP to Yale just to pursue my interest in autism. And for me, autism, um, so yes, I, I can see the human impact, but you know what started it all off was just my deep interest in cognitive neuroscience and social cognition and studying a condition again that affects things like you know again like abstract thought and then social interactions which I just find um, so intriguing from a science perspective I think um, my semi-secret goal is to like understand the biological basis of consciousness you know mm-hmm. like the, what I really want are inspired by answering one of those, or tackling, not answering, (laughs) tackling one of those big questions of life, you know, how did the, you know, universe originate, is there life in outer space, what's what's consciousness, I think that's one of those big questions that inspires me, Um, and so for me, studying autism is a way of um, approaching that question about consciousness, more specifically, it's social cognition, but still, like, I think, you know, like self-reflection, not so much consciousness in like wake sleep cycles, but more of the, like the self-reflection. How do we do that? How do we think about ourselves and our world? So that, that fascinates me. Um, uh, so yeah, so the rest is history. I came up to Yale, that was 2005 and I've been here ever since I finished the postdoctoral training finished my fellowship um, and stayed on as an assistant professor. Um, and um, I, this, yeah, this place has been great for um, collaborations and, and fulfilling all those dreams I had about working in this field. That's amazing that you uh, say that when a topic interests you, you, you do everything in order to like yes. try to answer it or at least tackle it, as you say. It, it was really hard to leave Penn and Philly because that's actually where I had grown up. Exactly. So I had gone to Yale for college, came back where my parents were living. Um, and I, you know, was going to raise a family there. You know, my parents would be close by and, and they'd be, you know, um, it, it was all like in my mind. This is how it was going to like, like picture perfect. Unfold. It yeah. was picture perfect. And so for me, like there are people who can move easily. I'm not that type. Mm-hmm. Like I, I get, you know, I get entrenched in places. <laughs> so I was pretty set on finding a home and starting a family and being near my parents. And um, we know we're getting old and wanted to be close to. And so to move, it's not a huge move. People make much bigger moves than I did. You know? Like, But to move back out of state to Connecticut was, was felt big for me. But I was driven enough by my scientific and clinical interest to do that. Yes, that's amazing that you did that. And also, um, you mentioned a little bit about how you got discouraged about pursuing your training or your passions. Uh, can you talk about a little bit how you dealt with that? And did it did you let it drive you? Or were you actually discouraged for a certain amount of time? Well, I mean, I guess I was discouraged enough where I stepped away from looking for a thesis lab in psychiatry and, okay. and you know, finding this training in ophthalmology. But I think it did drive me too, you know, where I thought like, no, but this is what I really like, you know, this is what I really want to do. And I and I saw my thesis work as like a kind of a vehicle to like just get the training, good get solid training, you know, molecular biology training that I could apply to my interests. So yes, most people I would say 
tend to stay in the same research field as their, you know, their their research training, you know, whether it's their thesis or their postdoctoral training, they kind of tend to stay in that field. And I really made a big switch going from ophthalmology to, you know, working on autism. So I I, I, I did have one faculty mentor um, who uh, at Penn who works on Alzheimer's and has done, a, you know, great work in that field. And I remember she gave me lots of good advice, but I remember one time she said to me, why do you want to work on autism? You can't see anything in the brain. Because you're so used to seeing plaques and tangles mm-hmm. in brain tissue. There's something you can, like, study, you know, whereas in autism, like, imaging has not, you know, shown a huge whopping signal in autism. So why would you want to study that? And I remember that, me thinking, no, you know what? It's worth studying <laughs> that. Like, okay, so it's harder but that doesn't mean it's not worth studying. And some, I think I've also been drawn a bit to that, like, why not study something that's harder and more challenging? Because it's more mysterious, right? I mean, the brain is more mysterious than other organs of the body. Like, why not try to, you know, and, and I think I've been justified because there's been so, research in autism has exploded. So it's a good thing that people are not turned off by the fact that it is, you know, such a mystery and so messy and it's not a straightforward Mendelian disorder or something mm-hmm. that you can see easily in the brain, you know, that it, it's obviously worth um, pursuing research in this field. And um, d- doing a little bit of research on you, I saw that you uh, have a lot of ongoing projects and already published uh, papers regarding how uh, not only the genetics of autism but like the parenting uh stress and how it affects the autism diagnosis Mm -hmm. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about that it was very interesting when i saw it sure yeah i mean i i can't really take um too much credit for that because it was the scholarly um project for one of our fellows in developmental behavioral pediatrics i mean he chose that topic to look at stress in parenting and i was on his committee and helped, you know, um, with the analysis and and helped, um, you know, editing the paper. But it was an interesting study because um, we found that parents who have children with a new diagnosis of autism have a lot of stress, and we don't always adequately ask or consistently ask about stress. We're sometimes so focused on the diagnosis and what's next for the child, which is important, you know, getting those services in place. But sometimes we forget about how much stress that can cause, not just parents, but also siblings in the family, you know, because the child with special needs takes so much attention. So I think that um, paper was just really bringing... And what the other, the other thing the paper showed was that even before the child gets a diagnosis, parents have so much stress. So that we really need to ask about stress um, and ask it earlier in the process, not wait till the end of the evaluation. Like we should really be asking upfront, how is this affecting your family? How is it affecting your relationships? Because um, it can be so stressful for parents. There is a higher divorce rate because of that stress when you have a child with autism. So we just, we were trying to show in that paper that we all as clinicians have to be very wary of this. Sometimes it gets kind of shunted to the side and it needs to be more prominent in our thinking is to think about the other family members and how the diagnosis is going to affect them, not just the child with autism. Yes, it's good that you have that uh, perspective from a physician 
mm-hmm. uh, since you're able to see the actual uh, patients yes. and their families, and th- that gives you like a broader view of it's what... so valuable. It really informs my research. So I'm not saying everyone out there needs to do an MD PhD program, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, but I have to say it's it's been a big advantage to me, and I always strongly encourage anyone who comes through my lab, students or or, um, research assistants, whoever they are, is to just come shadow me in clinic um, and just see what you're working for, you know, because it's really easy to get bogged down in research, pipetting from one tube to the next, you know, for hours and like sitting on a lab stool and or staring at like, you know, data on your computer. And sometimes you kind of lose perspective on why you're doing this and being able to see the patients that you are trying to help and how hard it is on those families and those children, it really is inspiring. And so, you know, especially I would say for the non-MDs in my lab, I encourage them to come see I mean, it's been harder now because of the pandemic and yeah. we've been so restricted and who's allowed to actually come into the clinic. But I before the pandemic, I, I did that all the time. I'd had you know, uh, trainees come all the time and, 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 and watch what an autism evaluation looks like when if, if the parents obviously give permission for them to be there. I, I'd, I'd always invite them uh, to see one of these evaluations. And it really does make an impression, you know, really does kind of, you know, re-inspire. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. And um, you are part of the diagnostics clinic over here. Mm-hmm. Uh, how is it running a diagnostics clinic with all that parenting stress uh though i can imagine like you're sometimes fully booked (laughs) for like the year or two years definitely but quite a few months yeah um which parameters or which things you normally ask parents when in an evaluation and how do you implement that in your research too oh so just the connections you're saying between my my i think um for sure i i raise um you know the the prospect of research with families after they've gotten a diagnosis i i try to talk to them about how important um, the research effort is and try to get them interested in participating in various research projects. But I mean, the problem with the state of autism research right now is that we just don't know enough to really um, translate what we're doing um, in the lab into the clinic so immediately, because there's still so much of the biology of autism we, we don't know and need to understand. So we, yes, for example, we have a list of strongly associated genes, but we still don't know at the molecular and cellular level, you know, really what's, people are really working hard on this Mm -hmm. and and finding clues, but how it actually goes from genetic mutations to, for example, autism, what's going on in the brain. So there aren't right now immediate benefits from research for these families. I mean, these parents, I see young kids, kids are like two, three years old, and what they're worried about is toilet training their children. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're worried about how to get them out the door because they have so much rigidity or you know difficulty with transitions. I mean, they're looking for practical help. Their child is not you know, communicating their needs and wants. So for me to talk about research and, oh, yes, you should, you know, do genetics so we can find what mutate. And like, what is that? How does that help my child? You know, there's just so many steps in between. And so it is quite a challenge to, you know, really 
explain um, how this will be helpful. And I and I do have to broaden the picture and say it's, you know, it might not just help your child right now, but it really does help the broader research effort. And we are so dedicated to understanding autism and identifying potential targets for treatment that the only way we're going to get there is by families like you who agree to participate and help us understand, you know, the neurobiology of, of autism. So it can be a hard sell sometimes, and you have mm-hmm. to develop a close relationship relationship with parents to be able to bring this up and say, why is this a good thing to do? Um, so I do make an effort to do that in my clinic, but it, you know, it comes after addressing all of their immediate concerns. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, one of the specific things, if you're asking that I do in clinic and in, in relate in relation to my research is I, I have a, a big interest in regression. And I study childhood disintegrative disorder, which is a, a very it's a rare, severe form of autism and regression. Um, and so I'm it's it's rare enough where I'm not going to expect to see kids in my clinic have mm-hmm. CDD, but I do ask about regression because I find regression in general something so um, devastating to parents that I do ask about it, you know, a little bit spurred on by my own research and interest in that field. Um, and and uh it's a really common phenomenon in the spectrum. About a third of kids have some story of a regression where they had skills that they lost. Mm-hmm. And as a parent, you think like, oh, my child, you celebrate each developmental milestone, you know. And so you never think that once your child has started talking that they're not going to stop talking, right? So it's a really, um, even within autism, which is a mystery itself, it's it's one of the more mysterious elements of autism. Why do kids lose skills that they've already gained? Um, so, uh, I do bring that up, you know, in clinic asking about regression just because of my personal research interest in that. But I, as I said, I also address the larger issue of why research is important and why, you know, it's, it's so valuable and appreciated when families participate in, in research. Yeah. And also that, um, not just the research that you're doing, but, um, Again, going back to that, having that both of those perspectives helps Mm -hmm. the broader view of research into like implementing uh, research questions Mm -hmm. or research uh, approaches that are beneficial for families or uh, are impactful for their immediate needs. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I think we always have to keep an eye on that is what our parents facing in the trenches right? Mm -hmm. And, and therapists, too. Like what's going on immediately? Because if you don't, you know, try to help and address those things, then everything else just seems so academic. Um, yeah, it's like that humanity that's much needed in research yeah. right now, right now, and since since ever. <laughs> yep, yep. And what advice would you give to uh, your undergraduate self, or maybe even before undergrad? Mm-hmm. I, I think the most important thing, which I ended up doing, and I would tell any young student is you have, it sounds like such a cliche, but you do have to follow what you're most interested in because research does not have immediate rewards. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it takes a long time. It's a hard slog, long and hard slog. And there's going to be so much roller coaster activity going, you know, highs and lows, a lot of lows in, in research, you know, with whatever it is, projects not working out or grants not being funded or papers being rejected, that if you're not working on something you really care about and are like really passionate about, it's going to be torture. It really is like it, it already takes a patient person to want to do research. So 
you know, a, a young student should never, I think, follow a topic that just tends to be a hot topic at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, I, it really has to be something that you are driven to do. Like, because, you know, some of my best ideas or thoughts come from when I'm not in lab, when I'm driving in the car or falling asleep and I'm thinking about this issue, this problem. And sometimes that's where I get good ideas for a project or a grant proposal, you know. So if it's not a topic that you're driven to think about, you know, in that way, then you're not going to, I think, be as happy or succeed, you know. So so because research is such a tough field, you, I think you absolutely have to follow something you're passionate about because you have to want to get up in the morning and want to do, you know, not dread going to work, <laughs> but really like want to go to work and feel energized about it. And even though I'm working in a field that I developed a really early and deep interest in, there's still mornings when I'm like, oh, you know, like, <laughs> oh, you know, that's have... something not, not not everyone talks about. Yeah, about, like you're passionate, but you're tired sometimes. Yes, yeah. yes, and 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 you and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> you know, even within your passion to be tired and 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 um discouraged, but you're much more likely to bounce back, I think, if it's a topic that you really do care deeply about. And so you must find that, I think. Otherwise, it's not going to be fun. Yeah, exactly. What are you most excited about in your research right now? Like, which project or... Yeah, so I guess the themes of my lab are um, studying understudied populations on mm-hmm. the spectrum. I've been kind of drawn to that over the years. In the beginning, uh, when my postdoctoral training was studying the genetics of autism, like the broad spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, but since then, I've really gravitated towards um, investigating those cohorts that are relatively understudied. So the one that has um, had a bit of success is looking at sex differences mm-hmm. in autism. Um, you know, there's a, f- um, males are more prevalent, um, meaning like about four males are di- diagnosed to every one female. So the diagnosis is more prevalent in males. And there's been this observation that females with autism on average tend to have more damaging genetic mutations. It's an okay. interesting observation. And the thinking there is that they might have some protective factors that, you know, girls require a bigger hit, genetic hit to develop autism because they might have some resiliency factors or some kind of protective factors. So that's a hot topic of research in our field. Girls tend to be understudied um, because there's not as many girls with autism, but this observation has really refocused interest on girls with autism because if there are such protective factors, we'd love to know what they are and, you know, can we leverage them and help others on the spectrum, right, if there are such resiliency factors. And so I've been a part of a research consortium, which is nationwide, several sites. Um, It's called an Autism Center of Excellence Network and focuses on sex differences and specifically the female profile in autism because a lot of the research um, has been on male samples Mm -hmm. because, again, they are more prevalent, easier to, you know, um, recruit. Um, but there, you know, we've focused on um, characterizing, really comprehensively characterizing a cohort that's balanced between males and females. And it really took years to be able to build this cohort because it is much harder to recruit girls with autism. Um, so we were able to um, write the first big paper um, looking at the neurogenetic basis of female autism, which came out 
last year um, and it's gained a lot of attention, which is great because females with autism re- need attention. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they have, they've been understudied. And so I've been really excited. So one being that they're an understudied cohort, mm-hmm. which, I, as I said, I've gravitated towards studying. And also, um, it really was a truly a, a multimodal effort, and I'm most excited by those. So there are definitely people, and we need them, who do kind of straight-up gene hunting looking for genetic mutations um, in autism or other, you know, conditions. Um, what I've gravitated toward is doing more multidisciplinary work. So, like, for example, collaborating with my colleagues um, who do neuroimaging or do eye tracking and these other modalities, because what we're finding is, is that when you look for convergence between very different data sets, like, for example, genetics and imaging, and you kind of like land on certain brain regions, you know, that might be responsible for a condition like autism, you have so much more confidence in your results because you've now combined two very different platforms, right, to, to, to come up with that result. So that's, and, and so um, it looks pretty good that we're gonna be renewed for another five years. This project has been going on for 10 years now. Wow. And so this summer um, we should be able to we haven't gotten the official letter yet, so I don't want to jump the gun, but it, the, all the points, all the signs point to that we will be working on this for another at least five years. And we've also, um, so we will still do a multidisciplinary work in terms of like my lab will be leading up the genetics analysis for these um, study subjects. Um, I have neuroimaging collaborators. But one of the new things we're doing this time around is really um, f- um, honing, like really focusing in on individuals who are misdiagnosed or late diagnosed. Okay. Because there are plenty of those. They tend to be women because, again, it's under-recognized in women, autism is. And so we want to understand better the biology of those individuals. Like, why do they have this, like, no long diagnostic journey where they might have several misdiagnoses, they're late diagnosed, because it really has an impact on their lives. You know, not being able to get services and therapies in a timely fashion can, can really wreak havoc on their mental health. And so um, I'm really excited to continue to be part of this um, con- this ACE network focusing on, on the female profile. And then, um, so that's the one I most, you know, that's been, I think, the most successful so far. Um, I have another project that um, has been a struggle. Okay. <laughs> so I don't know if you want me to talk yes, about that yes. one. <laughs> so I would actually call it, you know, my favorite project. Not supposed to have a favorite <laughs> child, right? But I, but um, it's it's the study on regression regression in autism, oh, childhood okay. disintegrative disorder. And it's rare. It's like one in 100,000, which is much less common than autism, which is like one in like 40 something now. Um, anyway, these kids have a very unique history in that they have prolonged normal early development. Um, and then they have this like episode of massive regression. And they at the end of the regression, when they've kind of stabilized, they um, meet criteria for autism, Why? which is why it was kind of lumped up with the, the other you know, diagnoses under the autism umbrella. So, um, so that's not considered a late diagnosis. It, it is a late it diagnosis, okay. but but the the history is so unique. Okay. So so again, as I mentioned, about a third of kids on the spectrum have some history of regression, but it's usually like. You know, they might have had a few words and lost them or and, and it usually happens in the second year of life, like okay. between 12 and 24 months when you usually hear that um, story of like, oh, my child lost skills that they had before. 
Um, but for these kids, it's very dramatic because the average age is like four to five, um, around four years of age. So you're talking about kids, typical development, they're talking, they're conversing, they're having, mm-hmm. you know, their social interactions, they're playing, they're pretending, you know, and then they regress. I mean, so it's much more dramatic than, you know, an infant who might lose a word or two. Um, so it's clear, it's dramatic, it's later. And about three quarters of these kids also have this period of like extreme agitation and irritability before the regression, which is also very disturbing to families. And the regression, some parents feel like it happens overnight. But usually what we find is that like the average is about a few weeks to maybe a couple of months that this regression wow. period occurs and then um and and the and the regression is very severe you know often these um, individuals are nonverbal or maybe just have a couple of words after they've been like talking and conversing mm-hmm. like a typical four or five year old might you know um and then you know obviously they've lost social skills because another meeting criteria for autism so it's very devastating it's very disturbing we know so little about it because it's rare so the problem is, um, is that um, the diagnosis of CDD, childhood disintegrative disorder, what I'm describing, mm-hmm. was dropped from the DSM-5. So the DSM is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, kind of like our handbook to help diagnose neurodevelopmental and neuropsychiatric um, conditions. Um, and so what happened was, um, this was 2013, so it's almost been 10 years now, but the DSM-4 became the DSM-5, the fifth edition. And there were various subdiagnoses. There was Asperger's syndrome, you might have heard of that. Yes. Pervasive developmental disorder, classical autism. It was all lumped into this one umbrella category called autism spectrum disorder. And there was a lot of controversy behind that decision. The rationale was that we don't know, or at least one of the rationale was we don't know enough about autism on the biological level to really parse out accurately these various sub-diagnoses. And experts in the field often agreed with one another about whether someone was on the spectrum or not, but not necessarily whether someone had high-functioning autism versus Asperger's versus PDD-NOS. So the thought was to simplify things that everything would be under this one big umbrella term. The problem I think has been is that because it is such a broad spectrum with so much clinical variability that we've lost a lot of information by doing that. Mm -hmm. And yes, you can describe further saying, you know, a child has autism spectrum disorder with intellectual disability or some of these other parameters, but still CDD got dropped from, so it doesn't, you know, it's, it doesn't appear in the DSM-5. So we already have a disorder that's rare that a lot, most clinicians have not seen for themselves. And now it's not even in the DSM. And so trainees, for example, they're not even studying, not even studying it or know that it exists. And, you know, so our argument, and so this happened in the middle of our project. um, And we thought, well, we and again, another multimodal analysis. So some mm-hmm. of the same collaborators I was working with on the female profile of autism, we were also working together to do genetics and imaging work in, in these kids with CDD. So it turns out that even though it's so rare, Yale has probably the largest cohort in the world of these kids because Dr. Volkmar um, had the, you know, what... Uh, um, developed his expertise in seeing these kids and he would just get referrals from around the world literally from around the world Australia, Saudi Arabia, like Argentina like these kids would come to the Child Study Center to be seen and evaluated Um, and so um, when the the diagnosis got dropped from the DSM-5 people just lost awareness of it and you know our purpose is not to overturn (laughs) the classification system but what we realized was when it got dropped that it really made 
publishing on this and funding it really difficult, become really challenging. So there were agencies who were like, why are you looking at this? You know, it's, it's already been dropped. It's and- already, it's no longer a diagnosis. And, I'm, and we're thinking, well, the families haven't disappeared. <laughs> you know, maybe the label disappeared, but the families haven't <laughs> disappeared. We know them. There's a long history at the Child Study Center here of seeing these families. Um, and, and we know how devastating the condition is and how desperate these parents are for help. And again, you go back to that uh, physician researcher point of view. Yeah. 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 I mean, so so I, I would say the, my, it's, it's I've gotten to know some of these families really well. Over time, I've kept in good touch with them. I text them. I, I you mm-hmm. know, hear about how their children are doing. And they're, you know, sending me emails <laughs> saying, what have you learned? Have you, you know, learned anything? And it's so frustrating to me to how slow that research has become because we've had so many grants turned down looking at this, you know, and, and, and we've tried to like spin it saying, well, it's about regression, you know, forget about the label, you know, mm-hmm. and then it just have not been able to get through that barrier. Fortunately, the Simons Foundation, which is the largest private funder of autism research here, is the only agency that's kept this alive. And that, you know, after years of not being able to do anything on this project, we did publish one paper from pilot funding from the Simons Foundation. And then we just kind of were dead in the water for a long time. Um, But I went back to the Simons Foundation and said, listen, I just can't find funding for this. Would you still be interested in picking this up again? And Thankfully, they were. <laughs> so so we got a grant to basically um, recruit another 50 families affected by wow. CDD. So our initial paper was about 15 families. And so we are in the middle of this project recruiting these families. And what I see it is is my chance to prove to the larger research community that this cohort does exist. They're very unique and they are worthy of study, intense investigation. They're not just part of the broader spectrum. There's something different about them. And that's what our preliminary, like our initial paper showed was that at the genetic, at the neuroimaging, at the eye tracking level, they are different. There might be different neurobiological underpinnings to to CDD versus the broader other forms of autism. And that's why it's worth studying because it might mean different treatments. It might mean different ways of diagnosing these kids. Um, so that's been a struggle because I, I was never faced with that challenge of having a project, having so many grants turned down for a particular project. And it became very discouraging to the point where I thought, am I a good scientist? Is there something wrong with me? Like, why can't everyone else understand how important it is to look at this? You know, so I I, um, I think that that's been my research career low point is trying to... <laughs> fund that project low but maybe it will be turning into a high point later on hopefully well yeah i i hope so for the families not just for like of course yeah Yeah, because to me i mean i can't imagine what these parents go through but for me it's frustrating when i get these emails and i have to say i i don't have any new anything new to tell you (laughs) you know and then meanwhile their children are growing up in some of these Children are now in their 20s, and they're very disabled. You know, as I said, they tend to be nonverbal. They tend to have significant intellectual disability, and no one understands what's going on. And they end up, some of them end up in institutions because they just can't be handled. You know, mm-hmm. they, they're just so, um, yeah, impaired. And during that, those moments of uh, 
underestimating like your your science not your science career but your science capacity maybe yeah. am I a good scientist or anything what drives you is the families themselves right definitely I I have had plenty of um, senior research people tell me you need to drop this mm-hmm. because it's a it's a career killer <laughs> you're committing suicide by trying to like pursue this and and um the reason why I haven't done that is because of the families. Because as I said, I've gotten to know some of them so well over the years. And so I feel like if I drop this, and I think we're about the only group in the world studying the neurogenetic basis of this condition. If, if we drop it, then where else will they go? Who else will pick this up? You know, so I'm really driven by the relationship I've developed with some of these families affected by CDD. And I, I just can't imagine saying, I'm closing up shop. I'm sorry. You know, mm-hmm. you have to find something else like I, I just can't imagine doing that so it's not my only project if it had been my only project then yes I would be out of a job right but um but it is my favorite project because of the relationships I've developed uh, oh. and I really feel so driven to want to help them um, which is what, what's kept this project going and it's cool that you have a uh, a uh... A sort of cohort that you can collaborate with during these projects how does that normally go all the logistics and stuff how does it go well you know so um right now the current project where we're just recruiting this cohort it's all remote which is okay thank it started right before the pandemic started so that was very fortunate that it wasn't dependent on families flying into new haven for an for um you know a clinical evaluation that's something I would love to do. That was the initial proposal to the Simons Foundation was to fly these families in from all over the place and then do imaging, genetics, eye tracking, various studies. Um, but we were only funded to kind of do part of that. And it, because I think people want us to prove that this cohort exists before they will fund the rest of it, meaning mm-hmm. like the imaging, the genetics, et cetera. But this um, project right now is basically having you know, parents consent online and then giving them um, questionnaires that, you know, some of them customized, some of them commercial, asking about their children, their history, their, you know, features of autism and regression and, you know, other delays and having them um, send us medical records to review and most importantly, also sending home video clips around the time of the regression to analyze. I have a an amazing collaborator at UC Davis. Her name is Dr. Sally Ozanoff, and she's kind of a world expert in video coding, you know, uh, um, analysis um, of, of behaviors. And so she's part of this project and um, it can all be done remotely. I mean, just, it's still been a challenge to mm-hmm. do this project because during the pandemic, people still are not really thinking, now let me do this research project. I yeah. mean, it's been, you know, we have a lot of enthusiastic families who sign up, but it's been more challenging to get them to complete every step of the project. Um, but it's still, you know, if if it had been, I, and I still want to have them come here for an evaluation, um, the pandemic would have really hurt that effort, obviously. So the fact that we had planned this to be remote was 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 a good thing, meaning that you know we are still being able to make significant progress despite the challenges of the pandemic. Yes, and by having all that data like online for other people to collaborate with and yeah. put in their own perspectives Mm -hmm. from that's amazing um so we're gonna wrap it up a little bit with a like a fun word association game Uh regarding the uh neuroscience uh this is something we haven't done yet oh no i'm the guinea pig yes (laughs) so we have uh 
it's just five words and you're gonna say the first thing that comes uh, up to your mouth so, so it, bad at these things <laughs> so uh, the first one is brain um mystery <laughs> mystery uh research um critical patience which patients like the the clinical patients or like being patient as a virtue <laughs> well let's do both then oh, no. patient, clinical patients <laughs> um rewarding patience no. uh essential <laughs> uh, teaching also essential and passion um oh gosh i don't want to say essential again <laughs> critical <laughs> critical so, yeah, that's it. Thank you so much for acceding to this interview. It was really nice talking to you and Same having here. a perspective on research and a clinical view of how it affects the world around us. And thank you. Thank you yeah, for acceding to you. this. Thank <laughs> you. Great. Have a great one. You too. <laughs>